Well, I know if you are like me, I know, well, I know many of you like me are dismayed by the level of polarization we have in our nation um, these days and in many other parts of the world too. Uh, you know, it's a really strange thing if you stop to think about it. They're rich against poor, liberal against conservative, often one race or ethnicity or nationality or religion against another, even men against women. And, and it's not like you have one side that's trying to be civil and the other is just being unreasonable. Usually both sides, at least at the extremes, are equally uncivil, right? Yeah, neither side seems to be willing to listen to or see any good at all in the other. Now, as followers of Jesus, we can, of course, recognize this polarization for what it is. It's the work of Satan, the accuser, stirring up suspicion and fear and greed and distrust on both sides of every issue. You know, in Jesus' great prayer found in John 17, he prayed that we might all become perfectly one, one with God and one with each other. Satan's goal is exactly the opposite. The problem is, just knowing the source of the polarization doesn't make it all that much easier to avoid getting caught up in it, does it? <laughs> really doesn't. I mean, it is so easy to see the rightness of our own viewpoints and the wrongness of the other sides. Is that just me? Oh, okay, good. They're just kind of quiet out there. Yeah. And most of us, most of the time, tend to turn to newscasts or pundits or friends who simply reinforce what we already believe. This isn't a new problem, though. It's not something that's unique to our 21st century world. Almost 3,000 years ago, Jonah was caught up in the same kind of struggle. Growing up in an Israel which had lost its vision for the kind of kingdom God intended it to be, Jonah lived in a world that was saturated with fear and greed and hatred, a world at least as polarized as our own. From his earliest days, Jonah would have absorbed the message that Israel was good. You know, Israel was God's favorite. All the other nations and all the people in them, he would have heard, were evil, unloved by God, and of value only to the degree that they could be used for Israel's benefit. Even as a prophet who knew God's voice and understood God's character, that view of the world shaped Jonah's very identity. And here's the surprising good news. God was passionately in love with this angry, fearful, judgmental, bigoted prophet named Jonah. <laughs> Just as he's passionately in love with each one of us. God was unwilling to leave Jonah in his brokenness. God wouldn't force Jonah to change, but he wouldn't stop poking at all those parts that hurt either. What was it in the end that God was after in Jonah? You know, what is it that he's after in us? That's what I want to talk about today as we look at the last chapter of Jonah. Are you ready? Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, like B.J. 
prayed earlier, we are here at your invitation, and we respond to that invitation this morning, Lord, to come and to be in your presence, to open our hearts to you, to open our minds to you. We just say, come Holy Spirit and and speak to us this morning, Uh, do a work in us this morning. We offer our lives, um, our very selves up to you, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to begin reading, um, picking up from the last verse of chapter 3 and then reading the first few verses of chapter 4. And just to set the context again, this is after now Jonah has gone back to Nineveh. You know, he's been burped up by the whale, fish, whatever, gone back to uh, Nineveh. He's preached his message of judgment on that city, and the city has repented. All the people in the city have repented. And that's where we pick up in uh, Jonah 3, verse 10 says, when God saw what they did, the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? In his book entitled Under the Unpredictable Plant, Eugene Peterson told a story about when he was a five-year-old boy growing up in the plains of eastern Montana. He said he liked to walk out through his uh, backyard and cross the meadow to the barbed wire fence and watch the farmer plow his field with his enormous John Deere tractor. And one thing Eugene wished for more than anything back then was for a ride on that tractor. So one day Eugene was standing there watching, and the farmer stopped his tractor about 100 yards away. He stood up on the seat, and he started waving his arm around like this. Well, Eugene said he looked mean and angry. You know, the farmer was big. He was ominous looking in his bib overalls and his straw hat. And then the farmer started yelling. But the wind was blowing the wrong way, and Eugene couldn't hear what he was saying Eugene just knew he was probably somewhere he wasn't supposed to be. He hadn't felt like he was doing anything wrong, but all the same, he figured he must have been. So Eugene turned and went home feeling rejected and rebuked. Farmer's name was Leonard Storm. He was a huge Norwegian with a wife named Olga. (laughs) He never, I'm sure she was a sweet woman. He never smiled. He, he just exuded a kind of thick Nordic gloom. Leonard was also a member of the church Eugene's family went to. So the next Sunday, this monster of a man named Leonard went up to little five-year-old Eugene after the service, and Leonard asked him, why didn't you come out into the field last Thursday and ride the tractor with me? Eugene told him he didn't know he could have. He thought Leonard was chasing him away. Leonard said, I called you. You I waved for you to come. Why did you leave? And when Eugene told him that he didn't know that's what Leonard was doing, 
Leonard asked Eugene what he would do if he wanted someone to come to him. So little five-year-old Eugene extended his index finger and curled it back three or four times. Leonard harumphed and said, that's piddling, boy. On the farm, we do things big. Well, Eugene said he was crushed by that, made him feel small. He was already small on the outside. Now he felt small on the inside, too. But he was also angry. That giant Norwegian farmer had called Eugene and his world piddling. Eugene said, I was a five-year-old Jonah. I was exceedingly displeased. Jonah was angry because God had shown Jonah that he, his view of the world, and even his view of God were piddling, small, trifling, petty. In Jonah's mind, the Jews were God's people, the Ninevites were bad people, and therefore God should destroy the Ninevites. Case closed, right? In Jonah's mind, he had done what God had told him to do. He had been obedient to God's command to go and preach to those wicked people in Nineveh, even though he didn't want to do it. Jonah had done his part, so now it was up to God to do his part. Jonah wanted God to back him up and to do what Jonah had prophesied God would do. I mean, after all, Jonah's credibility as a prophet was on the line here. But God didn't do what Jonah thought he should do. And Jonah was exceedingly displeased. He was angry. Yeah, anger flares up in us when something is wrong. You know, anger in itself is not a bad thing. That's a good thing for us to know. Sometimes we get confused about that. Anger is not in itself a bad thing. It's part of how God made us. Just like pain, anger is an indicator that something is not right. So we want to pay attention to it when we feel it. The problem, though, is that when we feel anger, we almost always assume that what is wrong is something outside of us, something outside of me. It's the way my spouse spoke to me. It's the way my friend mistreated me. It's the way my kids want my attention when I'm busy or tired. It's, it's the way that person who doesn't know how to drive cut me off on the highway. You know, it's the conservatives. It's the liberals. What's wrong, we are sure, is out there. I mean, if only my boss was a better person, if only my company paid me what I was worth, uh, if, if, if only other people saw things the right way, the way I do, if only God would act the way he's supposed to, then I wouldn't be angry. Do you do well to be angry, God asked Jonah? No doubt Jonah was thinking, yes, I'm angry because you didn't do what you should have done, God. Much of the time, though, what is wrong isn't so much what is outside of us. It's not the other person. It's not the circumstances we find ourselves in. Not really. What's wrong is something inside of us. It's our fears, our wounds 
our insecurities, our lack of understanding, perhaps. Not always, but much of the time, that is what is actually wrong. That is what's triggering the anger. What was wrong inside Jonah wasn't his knowledge. It wasn't his grasp of facts about God. In verse 2, Jonah said, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah's problem wasn't with his knowledge. The problem was in his heart. Jonah hated the Ninevites. He was afraid of them. He couldn't imagine how it could be just for God's grace and mercy to extend to them. He couldn't imagine a love of God great enough to encompass both Israel and Nineveh. Jonah's knowledge about God hadn't yet captured his imagination so as to transform his heart. So even though Jonah was now standing in a place overflowing with the creativity of the gospel, awash in the saving power of God, he was still living in his own piddling world. And like we've been saying throughout this sermon series, we're all Jonah, right? We're all Jonah. God had broken loose in Nineveh, you could say, with his grace and his mercy. And that was amazing. It really was. But if you think about it, now God has broken loose in our whole world. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit being poured out, through the love of God our Father, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come in us who have given our lives to Jesus. And the kingdom of God is coming all throughout the world in all sorts of ways. The Holy Spirit is at, is at work in everything, everywhere, all of the time. We are standing in a world overflowing with the creativity of the gospel and awash in the saving power of God. And yet we can so easily still live in our own piddling worlds with stunted imaginations and hearts still in bondage to fear. Whether it's that political polarization or the seductive pull of pleasure and money or the overwhelming need to protect ourselves that has so gripped our culture, Jesus says to us, let me capture your imagination, transform your heart, and enlarge your life. Let me capture your imagination, transform your heart, and enlarge your life. Let me read on, starting in verse 5 through the rest of the chapter here. <clears throat> Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city just hoping God would still smite them, right? Um, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. 
But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? During the first sermon of this series, I said it would be easy to misunderstand the point of this book and to think that it's all about obedience. That what God wanted more than anything was for Jonah to bend to God's will and do what he commanded him to do. And that's clearly what Jonah thought it was all about. And like I said before, he believed that if he obeyed, then God should respond the way Jonah expected him to respond. In a book I was reading recently, the author said that is a great definition of paganism, the worship of a God who promises us results. The worship of a God who promises us results. Or to put it another way, if I do my religious duty, God will give me what I need or want. If I don't get what I need or want, I must have done something wrong. Just like Jonah, we all think that way, at least some of the time. But that's paganism, not Christianity. In John 14, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or we could say, If you love me, you will obey me. Now, I think many of us have heard that verse, others like it, and we believe it to be saying that I need to try really hard to obey God so that I can prove to him that I love him. That's an exhausting way to live, isn't it? It's a piddling way to live. What if Jesus meant exactly what he said? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It will become natural for you, little by little, more and more, to obey me as your love for me grows. The emphasis isn't on trying to obey. It's on growing in our love for God, which can only happen to the degree that we receive his love that we receive his grace, that we receive his mercy and his kindness, which is why our sermon series for Lent, starting next Sunday, is all about growing as those who receive. It's absolutely critical for us. See, Jesus wants to capture your imagination, transform your heart, and enlarge your life. So Jonah was sitting there, on the outskirts of Nineveh, angry as all get out, probably still hoping that God would come to his senses and rain down fire and brimstone on the city. 
Or if God won't do that, then Jonah wants God to kill him because he can't imagine going on living in a world that doesn't work the way Jonah thinks it should, where God doesn't work the way Jonah thinks he should. But what does God do instead? He meets Jonah where he's at. God loves him in a way that Jonah can receive. He appoints a plant, a vine in other translations, to grow up and shade Jonah. Just as Jonah had been exceedingly displeased a few verses earlier, now Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. In fact, it seems like he got really attached to that plant, doesn't it? Which I know can actually happen because I know how attached I got to all the trees I planted at the house Lisa and I lived in before, uh, this is while our kids were growing up, before we moved into Cedarburg. We had purchased two acres of an empty, you know, farmer's field, empty farmer's field, just grass. And during the 12 years we lived there, I filled much of that land with trees. So when we sold the house to move into Cedarburg, the hardest part for me was leaving behind all of my trees. I'd gotten really attached to them. Still grieving that loss. Jonah received God's love in the form of a plant. And what he got really attached to was the plant. Well, that was missing the point, wasn't it? We've talked about why we entitled this series, It's Not About the Fish, about how getting overly focused on questions about the fish misses the point. Well, what Jonah needed to learn is that it's not about the plant either. See, I suspect that Jonah thought of the plant as a sort of consolation prize. God didn't wipe out Nineveh after Jonah finally obeyed God and went there to preach, but at least he gave Jonah the plant. It's like Jonah saw the plant as a small token of gratitude from God for his obedience. In other words, to Jonah, it was the least God could do for him. Jonah had earned it. So when the plant dies, Jonah's furious again. I mean, even, even his token reward for obedience has now been taken away. His imagination had not yet been captured. His heart had not yet been transformed. Jonah was still living in his piddling world. He doesn't yet see that it's not about obedience. It's about grace. Grace for the Ninevites and grace for him. It's about God's immense love. I suspect that the polarization we have in our world today has some of the same roots. Now, a lot of people wouldn't frame their position on any particular issue in the language of trying to be obedient to God. But everybody on both sides of every issue does think that they have the right answer, they know the right thing to do, and if they could just get everyone to do their right thing, they would be rewarded with the right results that they want. Right? Right. But Jesus wants to capture our imagination and transform our hearts and enlarge our lives. 
He's inviting us to see what he sees, that we live in a world where the kingdom of God has come and is coming and will one day come completely. We live in a world awash in grace. We live in a world that is saturated with God's love. And Jesus wants us to see that we can be practitioners of that grace, right? Practitioners of grace. That's who we're called to be. He wants us to see that we can be agents of God's immense love. We can live in God's world. Yeah. Jonah is an intentionally unfinished story. It ends with God asking a question. You know, asking Jonah if he's going to remain in his piddling world. And we don't know how Jonah answers. You know, is that where he's going to stay? Or will he respond to God's invitation to capture his imagination, transform his heart, and enlarge his life? And we are all Jonah, right? We're all Jonah. So here's my suggestion for this week. Whenever you feel a, a twinge of anger toward someone or something, ask the Holy Spirit to show you if that's really pointing to something inside of you. You know, some fear, some hurt, some disappointment, maybe some lack of understanding. And if it is, or if it might be, ask God to help you to see what he sees in that moment. Invite him to capture your imagination so he can transform your heart and enlarge your life. Eugene Peterson wrote, a few days after my disappointment at the edge of Leonard Storm's field and his reprimand at the church, I was back at the fence watching, hoping I might get a second chance. The giant Norwegian saw me, stopped the tractor, and did it again. That giant sweeping motion of invitation. I was through the barbed wire in a flash, running across the furrowed field, and then up on the big green, big green John Deere. He let me stand in front of him, holding the steering wheel, pulling the plow down that long stretch of field. My smallness now absorbed in his largeness. Yeah. So, Father, that is what we want. We want to have our smallness absorbed in your largeness. We want to be able to see what you see. We want to see ourselves, to see each other, to see our world the way you see it. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you to capture our imagination, transform our hearts, and enlarge our lives.